This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Parker about his biography of the 16th century monarch Charles V, entitled Emperor, A New Life of Charles V. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I was born in Nottingham, England in 1943, so I'm very old much older than Charles V got to be. I taught in Cambridge and St. Andrews University, and then I moved to America in 1986, and I taught at Illinois, Yale, and now Ohio State. I've been here now 22 years. Uh, I have um, four children and three grandchildren, so I'm a happy guy. (laughs) You uh, have written quite a few books about early modern Europe, some real landmarks in the field. What led you to turn your attention to Charles V? It's it's a long story. Uh, I uh, began by studying his son, Philip II. And the reason I came upon him was uh, listening to a lecture when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge and uh, Dr. J.H. Eliot, as he was, as he was then, Sir John Eliot, as he is now, was giving lectures in a series on Europe from 1494 to 1715, very precise dates. And uh, obviously a lot of it rather bored him, although he was a terrific lecturer. But then he got on to Philip II and the Dutch Revolt. And he had a map behind him, cutting edge audiovisual technology in those days. (laughs) And he pointed to the map and he said, one of the things that no one has explained is how Philip II managed to send all those troops and all that treasure to the Netherlands and fought on in a war he couldn't win, but he couldn't afford to lose. And I thought, wow, that's an interesting question. So I I followed Elliot to his rooms and said, yo, interesting subject, sir. Um, Do you think one could do research on it? Could one perhaps do a PhD? And he said, maybe. And so I got hooked on Philip II and why he continued to fight a war that he couldn't win. Very topical in the 1960s when America is fighting a war at long distance, which it can't win, but it isn't prepared to lose. And so I got interested in Philip. Uh, Charles V, of course, is present. He's the good guy in the story. The Netherlands that rebel against Philip II were loyal to Charles V for most of his reign. He was born there. He loves them. Uh, he's nice to them, uh, but he's a peripheral figure. And uh, so I stayed with Philip II. And then having written his biography, I was working one day in a sort of final preparation for my last book on Philip II. I wanted to divorce from the prudent king. And so I called the biography The Imprudent King, trying to see where he'd gone wrong. And one of the uh, documents that I came upon was in the Hispanic Society of America, in New York City, and they had a magnificent uh, uh, volume, uh, a really terrific volume, of um, Charles V's instructions to his son, Philip, in 1543. And whereas many people knew the document from copies, no one had seen the originals for well over a century. And when I looked at them and saw that here was 50 folios written entirely in Charles's horrible handwriting. And believe me, it is horrible. <laughs> if you look at my biography, there's about three different examples of Charles writing in French, German, and Spanish, and they're all execrable. He's equally illegible in all three languages. Anyway, I thought to myself, you know, wow, this guy has taken a lot of time and trouble. He's revised it, he's deleted, he's added. And I thought, you know, I'm interested, you know, Charles, 
all this time after you wrote these, I've got interested in you and I want to know what made you so smart in 1543. And so I, you know, it's really that moment is December 2009. And it took me nearly 10 years to, to, to nail him down in a biography. You describe the handwriting. And I, I think that uh, there are quite a few people that can, you know, talk about that challenge and how oftentimes it can deter them from, you know, undertaking work, especially given, as you describe in the book, you know, Charles has a, a voluminous archive, all these documents that make, uh, that, that, that uh, inform it. How did you uh, master all of that? And, and, and what were some of the other challenges that you faced when, in terms of tackling Charles V as a subject? Well, you, you master it by perseverance and a lot of tears. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, you, you probably, when you study the paleography, the handwriting of someone uh, who has a difficult hand, you'll probably get 70% of it right in, in the first month, <laughs> another, another 15% in the first year. But the last few words are going to defy you almost all your life. So it, one of the reasons it took 10 years was I really had to uh, master his um, eccentricities in, in these different languages. I mean, this is a polyglot emperor. Uh, one of his famous sayings is that he, uh, 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 he he doesn't treat language as equal. When he has to talk to God, he uses Spanish. When he wants to um, um, seduce a woman, he uses French. When he wants to be playful with his intimates, he uses Italian. And when he wants to give orders and be, be awkward and difficult, he uses German. <laughs> so the guy, the guy has languages down at a, at, at, at a good state in his life. I was going to say at the beginning, but he didn't. When he comes to Spain for the first time in 1517, all he can speak is French. And his Spanish subjects don't like it. But he quickly realizes he's gone wrong and he picks up pretty fluent Spanish uh, within a year. The um, instructions that I mentioned to you in 1543, so when he's eight, Charles is born in 1500, it's really easy to calculate his age. Uh, in 1543, he's 43. And he writes the whole 50 pages in Spanish. Um, so, you know, the guy has really done his homework here. Languages are hard. Um, but the paleography, uh, you know, in, in I don't know which is harder, paleography or language. Um, I, 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 his handwriting, let me put it this way, Mark, his handwriting is so difficult that if I go two weeks without reading a Charles V holograph, I've forgotten what it says. And I look at it and I think, how on earth did I manage to read this? And then gradually it comes back. It's use it or lose it. Hmm. So what else is, is new in terms of what you've uh, brought into your examination of Charles V? Well, uh, structurally, a biography is easy. You start at birth. In the case of Charles, it's in Ghent, Ghent in Belgium in 1500, and it ends at death, which in Charles's case is in Juste, a little monastery. Uh, if you go to Spain, it's a great place to visit. It's just uh, 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 well, it's north northwest of Madrid, well worth going to. It's a nice monument. It's got a museum. It's a nice little place, and there's a parador very close to it. But he dies in Juste in 1558. But in the case of Charles V, I managed to find a little before his birth uh, in that uh, I found in um, a document in Lille in France, a uh, medical intervention when he was in the womb. Uh, his was a difficult birth and uh, uh, a midwife had to come and sort it out um, two or three months before he was born. And even more remarkable, I managed to catch sight of him very briefly after he dies. A Franciscan friar in Guatemala reported a vision in which he saw Charles's soul ascend from purgatory to paradise in 1562. Um, What's new? Well, those are two little things. Uh, um, uh, interesting that Charles's soul had languished in purgatory for four years, 58 <laughs> to 1562. I mean, if you're a Catholic, you wonder why it was so long. If you're a Protestant, you wonder why it wasn't a lot longer. Um, I can't explain that, um, but I uh, uh, did note that the cleric who recorded the vision asserted that he languished in purgatory for four years, quote, because he failed to arrest and burn Martin Luther when he had the chance at the Diet of Worms. Uh, so I can't answer uh, more, more better than the um, Franciscan, but I can say that um, there's many other secrets. I mentioned the 50-page document um, in the Hispanic Society of America archive, and it really is a detailed guide to his son. Um, and it's quite extraordinary. There are two different versions. Um, there's a first 
uh, instruction written on the 4th of May, 1543, in which he says, now, kid, you know, you're, you're going to be a big boy. You're 16. You're going to have to rule the kingdom, do it well, give justice, give audiences and and talk to uh, uh, your, your preceptor. Uh, don't do anything without him. Do this, do that. And he runs through all the advisors and says, what well, terrific guys they are. And by the way, you know, share this with them. So two days later, he writes a different instruction, says, nah, kid, um, the other one is public. This one is for you alone. Burn it if you feel you're ill. Don't let your wife see it. Philip is just about to get married. This is for you alone. And let me tell you now what I really think about the people who are going to be advising you. The Duke of Alva, what a bully. He even tries to intimidate me. So just imagine what he's going to do. And he goes through all these people and you can see why. He wanted it burnt. It's just very fortunate that, that the king didn't burn it. He kept it and indeed referred to it later. There's quotations from it. Hmm. So um, the, the document is known. But the fact that uh, the emperor wrote it himself, that he took such immense care to educate his son and heir on the art of government uh, is very remarkable. Indeed, I, I've seen a lot of documents um, from the 16th century and I've never seen anything like this. It's really unique. Um, there's a lot of documents in my biography, um, multiple archives, uh, some of them new, like the uh, 1543 item, others totally unknown. Um, a letter uh, that interests me in the Vienna archives, or as we say in Ohio, Vienna, um, uh, was um, sent by Charles uh, to the commander of his armies in Italy, the Duke of Bourbon, uh, in early June 1527. So before he knows of the sack of Rome, and the death of the Duke of Bourbon, 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 Bourbon uh, uh, saying, right, uh, you should be in Rome by now. And I hope you've carried out my orders to capture the, the city and the Pope and send them to Spain. So, you know, there's a plot, there's a plan. And Charles lies about it after. I knew nothing about this. I'm so upset that the Holy Father has been arrested. No, you're not. <laughs> you would have been. And so that was that was an interesting day uh, when I found that one. Um, and uh, I think the thing I'm most proud of is a medical study that I found of one of the digits dis, uh, 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 detached from the imperial body. Charles, you see, dies in Juste, which is very high in the Gredos Mountains, not far from Haburgo, where the best hams of Spain come from. And the reason they're so good is that they're put in bodegas, they're put in cellars. And they're cured in the very cold winters uh, over a number of years. And then they end up hanging from the um, uh, tavern roofs of Spain's best um, uh, uh, emporia. And Charles dies and for uh, 16 years, he's cured in the um, crypt of Juste. And so he is not mummified, but he looks as if he's been mummified. And in the 1860s, uh, the Spanish government or Spanish Republican government starts allowing people to look at Charles. They get him out of his sarcophagus, at the Escorial. They organize little trips to see him. And at some point, someone snips off his little finger or rather a digit of his little finger and eventually returns it to the monastery of El Escorial, which it, where it's kept in a separate box, an arqueta a red velvet box, and uh, someone who specializes in malaria, a man called Julian de Zulueta, uh, remembers reading that Charles V died of malaria, which is true, he did. But Zulueta decides it would be interesting to see what malaria looked like in the 16th century. So he gets permission from the king, Juan Carlos, to uh, uh, do a chemical analysis, a rehydration and analysis on uh, the, the, the cured uh, finger of Charles V, and he finds two things which are very interesting. Number one, yes, the king, the, the emperor dies of a double dose of malaria, which he almost certainly got at Juste, which until the days of recent days was uh, malaria capital of Spain. And secondly, uh, the emperor has terrible gout, arthritis gout, which have gnawed away the joint. Uh, it's been gnawed right away by the, the uh, the, the, the disease. And it explains why Charles is always complaining about arthritic pain, what terrible pain he's in. And remember, this is a year, this is before we have uh, 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 aspirins and ibuprofen, let alone opioids. 
And so the poor guy is really suffering from this. And so the the digit confirms uh, two things. First of all, Charles was perfectly healthy when he went to Uste, but died of a malaria that he, attract, he contracted from mosquitoes. And also that when he said he was in terrible pain from arthritis and gout, he wasn't joking. So I, I, I there's a little appendix at the end of the um, biography because the sources are a little ambiguous. But there is an appendix on the digit. Uh, uh, and so the biography relies on sources, you could say, that range from documents to digits. <laughs> I was wondering if uh, you could... Now that we've you know already kind of covered both the beginning and the end of of, of Charles's life, if you can maybe take us back a bit and, and talk a bit about uh, about his early years and and more uh, broadly his inheritance, because I think one of the things that has you know made Charles such a remarkable figure is what it was that he ruled, which was really to to me at least a, a very unique uh, you know. Uh, kingdom empire domain uh you know both uh at the time and since yes and and it's all to do with incest <laughs> it, it, he he inherits almost all of his european possessions he really only conquers two of them he uh, in fact annexes milan uh when the last native duke dies and won't give it to anybody else because he's the emperor He's the suzerain and he keeps it. But that's not what emperors are supposed to do. They're supposed to, uh, on the death of one holder, they're supposed to give it to another. So he doesn't conquer Milan, but he does fight for it. But he does conquer the Duchy of Gelders, Gelderland, Gelderland. And uh, uh, in 1543, in fact, the same year as the instruction um, is uh, uh, is written out, uh, Charles writes it because he's leaving Spain. Indeed, he will leave Spain for the next 16 years. But he does conquer Galdaland, but all the rest comes to him through inheritance. His, uh, his mother, uh, Joanna of Spain, uh, Joanna of Castile and Aragon, uh, is the, uh, uh, the heir to uh, Spain uh, possessions in America and Aragon and Aragon's possessions in Italy, uh, Sardinia, Naples, Sicily. And his father, Philip, is the heir of the Emperor Maximilian, uh, and a ruler of the Austrian land, and also uh, of Maximilian's wife, Mary of Burgundy, who has the Burgundian inheritance. So these, these four inheritances, Burgundy, Austria, Castile, and Aragon, and they come together through a series of marriages. It's not just that one. There are others which produce no children. But the idea is that uh, uh, matrimony, uh, uh, and, and in some places, matrimony between very, very close relatives, uh, will bring together all these inheritances without having to fight for them. Charles himself marries his cousin, his double cousin, uh, Isabella of Portugal, and uh, makes sure that his son, Philip II, his only legitimate son, marries another, uh, uh, the, the daughter of his sister, Catalina, and his brother-in-law, John III. So that's a sort of quadruple uh, incest. Uh, and and uh, one of the illustrations in the book is the uh, list of what they call parentescos, uh, uh, relationships between the different, between the, the, the princess of Portugal and Philip II, uh, and, and how many dispensations have to be secured from the Pope, because everybody knows this is incest. It's forbidden by Leviticus. And um, so the Pope has to dispense. And then at the end, it says, and by the way, you know, if there's any other parentescos that I haven't thought of, get something to cover them as well. <laughs> and you know, so, but this is, it works. It works. Charles V becomes the ruler of more of Europe than anybody else. Nobody in history rules an empire that goes from Spain to Vienna uh, and even beyond to Hungary. The Habsburgs do terribly well through marrying, uh, through marriage. Um, as a little um, saying at the time says, you know, other, other dynasties marry, uh, uh, excuse me, other dynasties fight, but you, happy Austria, marry. And that is through that is how most of the inheritance comes together. It comes together with Charles uh, because he is the oldest son of the surviving uh, children, the, the oldest surviving daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Castile Aragon and of uh, uh, Maximilian. Maximilian only has one son, Philip. So it, 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 it's not deliberately creating an empire for Charles, but that's the way it turns out. 
he's a person who basically from birth is going to be inheriting some sort of kingdom or territory. And one of the points that you made in the book that I thought was absolutely fascinating was the role models that he had for him. Because you mentioned he has a father, Philip. But you, as, as you described, Philip dies at early age. And so his role model uh, isn't a, his his father or his mother, but it's his grandfather, Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor. How, how does that influence him and shape him as a ruler? I think it has a number of effects. Um, if you like, that, that's, that was something that I, I thought had not been stressed in other biographies of Charles V. And there were a lot of biographies of Charles V. I mean, that's something like 500 have come out this century. Um, but it seemed to me that Maximilian's role is overlooked. And uh, there's a, Maximilian's script is almost worse than Charles's. And Charles's native tongue is, is, is French. So his French is pretty good. But Maximilian's native tongue is German. And his French is appalling. The syntax is very challenging. And the paleography too. But luckily, a lot of his correspondence about young Charles has been published. And I was able to put together a number of different sources and show how Charles quotes the emperor and says, well, my grandfather used to do this. My grandfather used to do that. And it's clear that that the grandfather, uh, Charles's father, Philip, as you say, dies early. I mean, he leaves the Netherlands at 1505 when Charles is five years old, never comes back. He dies in Spain the next year, 1506. Uh, and Maximilian comes in and, and uh, visits his grandchildren, the only the only grandchildren he's got, in fact, um, uh, and clearly likes young Charles and realizes he's the potential heir and he has to do his job educating him. So uh, one incident I particularly like is when uh, Charles is nine years old, he goes to uh, Flanders and is received as the Count of Flanders. And Maximilian goes with them and um, they after the ceremony, the swearing in, they tour through the streets with with aprons full of gold coins. And the two of them throw the gold coins into the crowd, shouting largesse, largesse. And any nine year old boy is going to think, wow, this this is really living. And Maximilian is the guy who makes it possible. So there's all sorts of little things. Uh, um, on, a, on another occasion, Maximilian, who has a wicked turn of phrase, um, uh, his, his, he has two children, only two, a son and a daughter. The daughter is called Margaret. And Maximilian makes sure that Margaret actually brings Charles up. She is their governess and also their mentor. And she trains the daughters to sew and make preserves and be good wives. And she makes sure Charles gets a decent education. And at one point, she writes back to her father and saying, well, you, you know, Dad, uh, Your Majesty, uh, you'll be pleased to know young Charles has, has started taking an interest in hunting. And Maximilian writes back and says, well, I'm glad you told me that, because if you hadn't been a good hunter, I would have thought he was a bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Really, you know, life with Maximilian must have been real fun. And he he makes a number of visits to the Netherlands. And he always when he stays, he always takes his nephew, his grandson with him. Uh, he, He makes sure his grandson has a room next to him. He's clearly grooming him for the succession. And uh, I think it's clear that Maximilian has identified uh, young Charles as his heir and wants to make sure um, that, that he, he carries on the legacy. And, you know, he, he, Maximilian even says sometimes, you know, I've done this for you. Make sure you keep on to it. Hold on to it. But he also teaches bad habits. Uh, Maximilian has a, a disordered, promiscuous uh, uh, private life. He, he sires so many illegitimate children that when he dies, um, Charles can't identify them all. He can't find out where they are. They keep turning up. You know, hello, I, I'm, I'm, your, I'm, I'm your cousin. You know, I'm, I'm Maximilian's illegitimate son. I'm your uncle. Uh, oh, really? I didn't know about you. And uh, what am I going to do for you? What do you want? And uh, he has uh, various affairs. And Charles does the same. Charles, Charles has three illegitimate children um, at the age of 20, 21, 22. Um, then he marries and he's a good boy, as far as we can tell. But then when his wife dies, he has an affair with a teenage servant. Um, in, in, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Rulers having affairs with teenage servants. And uh, in Regensburg, a lady called Barbara Blomberg. And uh, the child of that um, uh, marriage is Don John of Austria, the one who wins the Battle of Lepanto, and then dies in the Netherlands. So he's he, he he picks up from his grandfather, I think, that you can you can get away with a lot if you're an emperor. It's, it's fun to be an emperor. Mm-hmm. He also 
uh, picks up from his grandfather that you hate the French. You never trust the French. Uh, at one, one moment, Maximilian says to his daughter when she, uh, I forget, she says something that Maximilian doesn't like. And Maximilian says, sometimes I think you take me for a Frenchman. <laughs> obviously, is the worst insult in his book. And he tells Charles, you know, we've just defeated the French. Make sure you screw, you grind their faces into obscurity. If you can partition the country, you'll never be safe unless you destroy France. And I mean destroy France. So he picks up that. Uh, uh, he picks up the values of the Burgundian court. He picks up the idea of chivalry. He picks up the idea that really debt is something that happens to other people. You borrow money and they have to wait for it. He has absolutely no sense of, of, of fiscal propriety. Again, this sounds terribly familiar. And Charles the same. He, he, you know, if, if he needs it, he wants to spend it and he doesn't really care how he gets it. And he has no scruples about using other people's money and then declaring bankruptcy. Yeah, I was thinking. So Maximilian teaches him a lot. I was thinking, though, Maximilian didn't really have to uh, instill in him a hatred of the French because uh, when uh, Charles was when, when Maximilian dies and Charles is trying to inherit the throne, uh, the French king Francis tries to basically you know steal the imperial throne away from him. Yes. Well, what you have to remember is is uh, well, as you, you know, Mark, uh, the empire is elected. The emperor is elected by seven people who are called imaginatively in English the electors, Kurfürsten. And uh, uh, when Maximilian dies in 1519, he has not yet managed to have Charles recognized as his successor. The title is King of the Romans, and that's, or, that's Emperor-elect. And Maximilian fails to do that. And when the news arrives of his death, Francis I does what, what any king, Henry VIII does the same, any king would have done the same thing. They try and uh, arrange for their election. They, they throw money at the seven electors. And the electors' families, their ministers, their wives, they offer all sorts of things. And the king of Castile, Charles V, does the same. Or Charles I, as he is then, Charles I of Castile. But Charles just spends more. And uh, he also has more assets. His aunt Margaret in the Netherlands. Charles is in Spain, in Barcelona, in fact, when Maximilian dies. And uh, uh, Margaret, uh, uh, his aunt Margaret, the ruler of the Netherlands in his absence, is very, very smart at um, sending money into Germany and equally smart at making sure that Francis's money, uh, his, his money orders, his, his checks, uh, won't be cashed. So, so she not only makes sure that Charles is getting the money to the electors, she makes sure that nobody else is. And so it's hardly surprising that um, uh, in, in June 1519, when the electors meet to choose a king of the Romans, Charles gets it unanimously. They've all been bought, all seven of them. That's actually one of the parts of the book that I, I, I thought was fascinating was how, you know, Charles has, you know, he be, he basically becomes a ruler by degrees. You know, first it's yeah. Netherlands, then it's Spain, then it's Germany. And, and, and so he, in a sense, he's kind of gradually inaugurated into it. What, what, you know, how does that process shape him? And what are some of the early challenges he faces upon becoming a ruler of these areas? Well, Two challenges he doesn't face at first are the Lutheran challenge and the Turkish challenge. And I think he, he becomes emperor in 1519. Excuse me, he becomes king, king, of the, king of the Romans and therefore emperor-elect in 1519. Luther really only crashes on the scene in 1520. And the Turks only invade and occupy Hungary in 1526. If he had known about those two menaces just over the horizon. I wonder if he would have been so keen uh, to become emperor and whether the Germans might not have preferred Francis I, who had a lot more money and resources. He just can't use them at the election. So uh, there are some things that are not there. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right that the profile of the emperor changes as his life advances, as you say. First of all, his first title of Duke of Luxembourg. I mean, he's, he, that's all he is, Duke of Luxembourg. And then he becomes, when his father dies, uh, uh, he's in line, but he's age six, so he can't rule, but he's in line to inherit the Netherlands and probably Austria as well when grandfather dies. Uh, uh, but it's not clear what his status in Spain will be until Isabella the Catholic dies. And then Joanna's older brother and her older sister die. So Joanna becomes the heir apparent. And uh, uh, Charles doesn't go there until 1517, when he's 17. So, yes, he has time to come to terms with these new challenges. 
and and to develop a sort of trial and error procedure for ruling an empire that is constantly expanding. And we haven't even mentioned the Americas. In 1519, all he has, all he rules is the Caribbean islands and uh, uh, a couple of outposts on the Isthmus of Panama. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe um, the total area is, is a fragment of Spain. But by the time he dies, uh, his, uh, 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 in fact, well, I underestimate, perhaps the Caribbean islands and the Isthmus are about half the size of Spain. Uh, but um, in his, uh, uh, when he dies, he is the ruler of Mexico, Peru, all of the Isthmus, an area four times the size of Spain. So this is another colossal aggregation of power. And uh, Hernan Cortes, the guy who heads the conquistadores who take down Mexico, and Francisco Pizarro, who heads the gang who uh, takes down the Inca Empire, these are obviously very smart and talented men who have a lot of resources at their disposal. And yet Charles never loses control. On the contrary, Spain retains uh, uh, almost all of the Americas until 18, the 1810s. And, and uh, uh, Puerto Rico remained, Cuba remained, remained part of the Spanish Empire until 1898. So it's by far the longest lived transatlantic empire in world history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And so he's acquired this, this immense empire. And, and it, one of the things that I thought was one of the uh, very fascinating stories that you're telling is how he tries to govern all this. And, and it mm -hmm. seems like it's, it's a never-ending challenge. To, he yeah. can't have a presence in America, but he, ha but he can have a presence in Germany and Spain and Italy and the Netherlands. The problem is that he can't have a presence in all those places at once. How does he, how does he, over, how does he try to surmount this challenge? Well, he has a number of strategies. One is to, uh, he's lucky in that he has a number of siblings. As I said, Maximilian only has two children. But Joanna and Philip have several. They have, I think, in all seven. And uh, they're all pretty healthy. And Charles makes sure that every one of them uh, works for him. Either uh, uh, his youngest sister, Catalina, becomes queen of Portugal and uh, tries to guide Portugal, which is an independent kingdom, uh, Spain's way. Uh, his sister, Mary of Hungary, becomes governor of the Netherlands when Margaret dies. His brother Ferdinand becomes his lieutenant in Germany, uh, uh, and and he uh, the, these are some of the big trouble spots. The Netherlands and Germany, in particular, uh, require uh, princes of the blood, and he uses Mary uh, Mary of Hungary and um, Ferdinand, his brother, his only brother. Uh, as, uh, he leans on them a lot, and there's never any doubt who's boss. Uh, uh, Charles tells them what to do; they never tell Charles what to do. Uh, but for the other areas, he creates a good system of checks and balances as a viceroy or a governor. But there's also a supreme law court. It's not unlike the separation of powers in the United States, in which you have a legislature, an executive and a judiciary. And the three of them balance each other out. So if the executive, the viceroy gets out of hand, the judges will say, no, you can't do that. And they will appeal to the emperor and the emperor will say, no, you can't do that. And sometimes the emperor shows up in person. I mean, he visits all his dominions in Europe at one time or another. He spends quite a lot of time in Milan. Uh, uh, he spends a lot of time in Spain, the Netherlands and Germany. And he spends a lot of time. He spends you know, almost a year, if you take it all together, all the days of travel. He spends about a year traveling around between his different um, um, dominions because he sees himself as the, the, the only glue that holds it together. It is a dynastic empire. He is the only common denominator between them. And he thinks that uh, uh, if he visits them all, he can solve problems that nobody else can or in ways that nobody else can. And I think he probably gets a certain satisfaction from being the white knight on the charger who rides in to a chaotic situation and brings out of it order, peace, and victory. 
I did get the impression that it, it really did take a toll on him. I and mean, we're talking about travel in the, in the 16th century, and that couldn't mm-hmm. have been easy even for someone of Charles's nope. resources. No, but he's obviously a very good horseman mm-hmm. uh, uh, because he rides. Sometimes he covers, you know, well over 100 kilometers, you know, 70, 70 miles in a day, which on a horse is, is not bad. Uh, there was an interesting um, letter for ambassadors. Ambassadors are a great court source because Charles has always has an entourage of ambassadors with him. He never travels alone. Charles is never alone. Nothing that he does is done alone. And when he's traveling, one of the ambassadors said, well, you know, the emperor made a very fast journey from Barcelona to, to Tordesillas, where he wanted to see his mother and his family. And he only fell off a few times, just like all riders on post roads. I thought, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> um, because that's what kills his grandmother. Mary of Hungary dies because her horse throws her and she breaks her neck. Uh, uh, he has a number of close shaves. Uh, uh, he falls into the water in his armor at one point, and it's only luck that he's plucked out before he drowns. And I mean, armor does not help you to swim. So, you know, the guy, the guy has a measure of luck. But yes, it, clearly he enjoyed and he rejoiced in traveling, and sometimes he travels very long journeys. He does have the Roman roads, remember, uh, but he rides, uh, he doesn't go in carriages, uh, uh, and we know a lot about him when he, he, he's on his travels because he leaves you know, an endless paper trail because he has to be uh, accommodated, and so do his entourage. So we know when he's at such and such a place, there will be records of how much it costs to put up the emperor and his entourage for a night. Um, the only place where we lose sight of Charles are the days he's at sea. And again, there's almost a year of those 260 days he's at sea in the course of his reign. And on those days, we don't know what he does. But I'll tell you what, I suspect he reflects. He uses those days for reflection. When new business can't reach him, there's no way you can reach him. And I, I, it, There's just some evidence that when he lands, a whole series of orders go out, sometimes on quite major issues like how to deal with the Protestants in Germany. Uh, and I suspect that he's, he's been thinking out his alternative, not unlike, forgive me, I'm going off topic a little bit, but not unlike Winston Churchill. Um, uh, as soon as he hears of the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, Churchill determines to go to Washington and he's going to go on a warship, uh, uh, basically to strengthen Roosevelt's resolve. Uh, uh, to hit Germany first before Japan. And on that voyage, he's without much contact with the outside world. And he composes four extraordinarily detailed uh, uh, memoranda of what the Allies should do in 1942 and 1943, both in the Pacific and the European theater operations. And almost all of his suggestions are acted upon because he's the only one with a plan. And I think he has those plans because he has the leisure, leisure, uh, to work them out. And I think it's the same with Charles. The, the, the 30 days on the galley, 20 days on the galley, what else are you going to do? You can walk up and down, you can eat, you can drink, but you're probably going to spend some time sitting in your cabin and thinking, you know, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do about the Protestants? And when he comes ashore, he's worked it out. You, you mentioned the Protestants, and, and that's one of the uh, problems that he had to deal with throughout his reign. I, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, talk a bit about that and his issues with uh, Francis, because those two seem to loom especially uh, large during the uh, early years of his reign, a, a bit before the uh, Suleiman, uh, you know, challenges, uh, you know, advances into uh, Hungary, and, and and those I thought really stood, especially given the the, the novelty of, of, of the situation. I, I love the chapter titles, how you know initially he snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, and then he snatches mm-hmm. defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. Well, he, he does have a, a major success against Francis I, his generals. Uh, uh, Francis behaves rather foolishly at the head of his army uh, at the siege of Pavia and is captured. <laughs> you know, the king of France is captured and then brought, brought a prisoner to Spain where Charles uh, treats him very badly and makes him make all sorts of concessions, which as soon as Francis is set free, he reneges on. But let me go back to your original question about the Protestants. Um, I think there's some evidence, considerable evidence, that Charles is sympathetic to those who call for a reformation, small r, a reformation in the Church of Rome. He welcomes the criticisms of people like Erasmus, and even when Luther, whose first protest is about the practice of indulgences, that's to say the Pope's claim that he is able to um, save uh, souls from purgatory, 
uh, if they do certain things uh, uh, that Catholics should do, he issues an indulgence. And Luther says this is terrible. Nobody has the right to dispense uh, 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 with the punishments that God will decree. And clearly Charles accepts this because there's a decree issued by his government in the Netherlands saying no one, no one is to dispense indulgences until further notice. So that and the fact that Charles clearly tries to um, uh, buy Luther off and say, you know, Brother Martin, uh, if you would only <laughs> you know, withdraw some of your more extreme statements about the Pope being antichrist, I really can't go along with that. But some of the other things you're saying are pretty, pretty convincing. And he sends his, sends his confessor to talk to Luther and to Luther's patron, uh, the Elector of Saxony. It's really only at the confrontation of, of the Diet of Worms, uh, uh, or Worms as we used to call them in Nottingham. Uh, it sounds like the sort of menu you get in a, in a, in a university um, um, res hall of residence. <laughs> Diet of and at the confrontation, which, of which we have a lot of sources, as I say, the, all the ambassadors are there and they all write accounts. So you can put together a lot. And it's clear that Luther changes his ground or says something that Charles hasn't heard before because Charles said, I reject the authority of the Pope. Okay, fine. But I reject the authority of councils. The, the, the councils of the church have made mistakes. And when Charles hears that, he leaps up in his seat and says, I've heard enough. Go away. Go away, monk. I've given you a safe conduct. Get out of town. Uh, five days from now, if I find you again, I shall burn you as a heretic or heretic, heretic, as they say in Northern Ireland. And it's um, it, it, it's clearly a moment to which he realizes uh, that uh, uh, Luther is, 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 is a dangerous person um, uh, uh, and needs to be stopped. Uh, the problem is by April 1521, it's too late. Luther has already got a major following. Consider the consider this. Um, after the Diet of Worms, Luther makes a statement of what he had said there. He brings out a pamphlet, or his supporters bring out a pamphlet, uh, the one that ends with the famous sentence, here I stand, I can do no other, uh, printed in Latin and German. And everybody knows that. Here I stand. You know, it's the title of films about Martin Luther. Everybody knows that saying. Charles also issues a statement that night. He writes, he spends all night writing out a statement and he goes down the next day after he confronted Luther and he goes down and he reads his statement out to the Diet, to his German subjects. And nobody pays any attention. Nobody's heard of that. And yet that's his here I stand speech. But he doesn't have access to printing press. He doesn't play the public as Luther does. When Luther goes to Worms, there are hundreds of pamphlets that he's brought out. Luther is an extraordinarily prolific author, but he also is a master of propaganda and his stuff is spread. So by the time they meet each other, Luther has already won because it's impossible to put him down. Even if Charles had burnt Luther at Worms in 1521, there were lots of little Luthers ready to come out and do the same. It was just not possible to contain the movement at that point. Francis I, sure, plays into it, but it's really a German story. The Reformation at this stage is a German phenomenon. And then when the Turks come in, the Lutherans realize that they have taken over a significant part, perhaps one third of the territorial states are now adherents of Luther, and that they can sell their support, their military support against the Turks in return for toleration. And the emperor has to climb down and make temporary concessions of toleration for five years, 10 years in return for the troops, which will enable him to drive the Turks back. And he does that. He does drive the Turks back, but he grants toleration, which allows Lutheranism to spread. And, and I think that really highlights nicely the balancing act that you describe him having to undertake throughout his reign. He can never really seem to focus upon just one issue and, 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 and undertake that one task. He always has to factor in all these other issues. I was thinking, for example, about when he's dealing with a pope who, you know, in, in effect, he's allied with when it comes to the Protestants. But he's also waging war against the pope in Italy for territory. And, and, and so in, in a way, the pope is simultaneously his ally and his enemy. Yeah. Uh, that, that is true. That there are one or two exceptions. Uh, in 1535, he decides he is going to lead a crusade to recapture Tunis, a town in obviously modern Tunisia. But it's it's a quite a large city, and it's a base for 
uh, Islamic, uh, uh, as they would have thought of it, as Charles would have thought of Islamic terrorists, and as they would have thought of it in Tunis as Islamic freedom fighters. And he decides to uh, lead a crusade. He does lead the crusade. He captures Tunis. He then goes to Italy and does a victory lap all the way up Italy to the French border. But there he tells everything else to shut down. Uh, he tells all his subordinates, don't take any risks. Do not provoke anybody. Do not run up debts. Do not do this. Do not do that. Because I want all my resources to go on this crusade. So he's capable of doing that. In 1543, a date that's come out many times, but in some ways it's the year of one of Charles's greatest triumphs. Uh, again, he, he tries to shut down all the other operations and say, just concentrate on this one. I'm going to deal with the Duke of Galdas, and I want absolute uh, peace everywhere else until I've done it. And uh, uh, so he's capable of being single-minded, but uh, most of the time you're absolutely correct. It's one damn thing after another. He starts on something, and another problem crops up that distracts him and prevents him achieving his goals. We've been talking uh, a good deal about a lot of Charles's activities. I was wondering if you could perhaps give us uh, a sense of who he was and what he was like during this period, because at various points in your biography, you sort of stop and take a pause and, and, and capture a sense of, of Charles at various points in his life. During this period of, of you know, when he's this active monarch, it's the 1530s, uh, he's, he's, he's been, uh, you know, an emperor and a king for over a decade now. What was he like during this period? And, 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 and how is he you know, sort of, you know, uh, you know, dealing with his family and how is he, uh, you know, you know, addressing, you know, how is he you know, coping with the stresses that he had to deal with? It's not so easy to see how he deals with the stress. I mean, he does go out hunting a lot. He likes any sort of sport, always has. Um, and uh, uh, rather as um, he uses, I suspect, uses his time on ships uh, to, to ponder and, and work out what he's going to do next. I think sometimes on his sports expeditions and these are these are several multi-day affairs you know he says i'm going hunting for the next week so you know do what you have to do but leave me alone and when he comes back again there's lots of uh, uh, new ideas new edicts come out and i said so i expect one of the way he copes with stress is by getting away from it and trying to think you know what am i trying to do here he also and i find this rather touching he he writes out for himself uh, uh, pros and cons uh, uh, the first document like that I have found is from 1525, in which uh, before the Battle of Pavia, when he realizes the French are winning, as they are, and he says, what am I going to do? You know, I, here I am, I'm, I'm 24, uh, nearly 25, and um, I, I haven't done anything. You know, I haven't achieved anything. You know, no one's going to remember me when I'm gone. So what can I do? And he puts out the pros of going to Italy himself and leading his armies and perhaps going down in flames. Or, or staying where he is and waiting to see what happens next. And that's very interesting. And I think that's another stress-related uh, uh, issue. He, he, he locks himself away and ponders what he's going to do. And ambassadors say the same thing, that the emperor will sometimes go away and, and will just sit at a table uh, with, with a, a large sheet of paper and try and figure it out, writing out pro, pros and cons. Um, family, uh, he doesn't seem to get much solace from his family. On the contrary, he, he behaves rather badly, uh, uh, notably towards his mother, Joanna, sometimes called Joanna the Mad, who he keeps confined in a palace in Tordesillas. If you're in Spain, that's another place worth looking at. Uh, it's in uh, Old Castile. And uh, how does he treat her? He, he creates a fictitious world, uh, uh, a fictitious world which has actually been created by her father, uh, Ferdinand the Catholic, uh, but Charles uh, makes sure that she um, thinks that people were alive after they died. Um, he, he says, for example, that her father Ferdinand is still alive when he's dead, when Maximilian dies, who Joanna had rather liked Maximilian, Maximilian was nice to her. And he says, no, no, he's still alive, he's still alive, all is well, your majesty, don't worry. Um, and, and much worse than that, he plunders her possession, he steals from her, he steals from his own mother. Um, he, he will um, go and get her tapestries, her artwork, her, uh, uh, her silverware, which she has quite a lot, um, and, and even the uh, stuff for the chapel. He gets the, uh, the silver um, 
instruments that uh, I'm sorry I'm not a practicing Catholic so I don't I can't tell you what they exactly are but the communion cup and all the other things that you use in services which she has a lot of and he removes them and okay maybe you could excuse that but he then puts bricks in the boxes from which she's stolen the stuff so she won't notice that they're lighter and I find that really obnoxious uh, he, he reneges on promises made to others even his siblings and he falsely swears solemn oaths that he had not done things of which he stood accused. The, the most uh, egregious example is in 1541, he condones the murder of two French ambassadors. Now, murdering ambassadors is not something you're supposed to do in Renaissance Europe. But he then, even though he knows all about it, and actually he, does, he didn't order it, but he does condone it, he then repeatedly lies on oath about it, even to his wife, excuse me, even to his sister and to the Pope. Uh, on the other hand, and there is another hand, uh, he has charisma. There's no question that Charles has charisma. Uh, there are many descriptions of him working a room uh, so that, and I, I'm quoting from someone who, who observed him do that, in the end, everyone there who heard him became his slave. And even the siblings to whom he lied uh, continued to view him as the father of all of us, the only one who can save us. So, Charles is a flawed human being, like all of us, but the flaws are more apparent and more egregious, thanks to his eminence. And here the ambassadors come in. There must be at least 100 foreign ambassadors who serve at Charles's court uh, between 1500. The, the first ambassador comes when the kid is only a few months old, and the last one is there when he leaves Brussels in 1556. And they do write about everything he does. Every ambassador, and I think this is still true today, describes what he says, how he says it, the movements, uh, uh, how, whether he stutters, whether he stumbles, whether he looks you in the eye. You really feel you're there. A good ambassador uh, will really, really uh, tell you a lot about the person to whom they are credited. And these papers writing down the pros and cons of a policy dilemma um, so so I, I, I can't say he's a good or a bad man. I say just see him as flawed. Um, but a flawed human being who rules a larger area than anybody else in Europe for 40 years mm -hmm. uh, uh, with considerable success. Few, uh, if any, European rulers exercise so much power for so long. And, and it, as you asked me earlier, you know, he does it without precedence. He doesn't have the benefit of any precedence to cope with the problems that face him. Rebels, reformers, foreign enemies, distance, these are all new. And there's another aspect of his reign that I find very fascinating, which is the fact that, as you described, he's born in 1500. We're talking in the 1530s, obviously he's in his 30s, 1540s, he's in his 40s. And as you've already, and you've just mentioned, he uh, abdicates in 1556. What, I mean, it was, so he, he's 56 years old. Was there anything in, in as his reign wore on that, that led him to uh, decide that at some point he simply wanted to give up the throne? Was he getting tired of it? Was it wearing on him? Or was he perhaps looking ahead to try to make sure that it was a successful uh, uh, transition of power? Uh, as so often with Charles, there are, there are too, too many sources. Uh, <laughs> Charles himself gives several different accounts of why he does this. It's very unusual. I mean, the last emperor to do so may well have been Diocletian in the fourth uh, century AD. Uh, it's very unusual. And uh, Charles tries to justify it. And uh, he tells one ambassador, who's, you know, they say, you know, well, why did you do this? You know? And one ambassador says, you know, I've always intended to. It was, it was my aim right from the start. Uh, I was going to abdicate uh, at an, a propitious moment. And he says, I should have done it after I defeated the Protestants. That was the that was my best moment. I should have gone then, but I just missed the boat. I, I I thought I could do better. I thought I could really crush them, instead of which they defeated me. Then uh, Francisco de Borja, Saint Francis uh, uh, de Borja, um, who is uh, this as a courtier. He becomes a Jesuit later, becomes general of the Jesuit order. But he's a courtier who Charles has known all his life and has liked all his life. He was his intimate. And at one point, uh, Borgia visits him in Juste, this, this palace um, attached to a monastery where he retires. And Borgia says to him, you know, um, why did you do it? And Charles says to him, don't you remember when we were together in 1542? He gives a place. Uh, I said to you that that's what I intended to do. Yes, yes, 
said um, Borgia, I do remember that. So this is this is your fulfilling that vow you made in 1542. Yep, says Charles, I sure am. And then in a third iteration, he said that really uh, uh, what changed his mind was uh, he goes on campaign in 1554, his last campaign, and it totally exhausts him. And at this point, Philip II is, is, is 26, 27 years old. And Charles reckons, OK, you know, if I'm going to go, I, I've defeated the French, I've seen them off, let me go now. And so it's, it's as I say, choose that they're all Charles's decisions narrated by the emperor himself, but they are not cotenable. He's lying on two of the occasions out of three. And I don't know which one it is. Hmm. So he retires, in, in essence, in uh, yeah. 1556, and, and he dies a couple years later. What does he do at that time? How, how, does, he, how does he spend his retirement, if you will? It, it changes. Initially, he uh, uh, really does withdraw from the world. And remember, he goes to a very uh, isolated community of monks, Geronimite monks, the Geronimite order. You don't hear so much about it today, but it's very popular in 16th century Spain and has a special attachment to the royal family. Uh, when his wife dies in 1539, Charles uh, retires to weep and mourn at a Geronimite monastery outside Toledo. And uh, so he gradually makes up his mind that he, this is a, a the sort of a secluded life, the praying order which he wants to uh, uh, join. And for about the first year, he, he arrives there in, uh, no, not even the first six months from late 1556 when he gets there to early 1557. He does withdraw from the world. He starts writing about en mi tiempo, in my time, we did so and so and so and so. Or he will, you know, people ask him for something and he said, when I abdicated, I gave up all interest in public affairs. So go and go and talk to my son about it. Don't bother me. I'm not interested. And he clearly takes part in the services in the uh, chapel of the um, monastery at Juste. But then gradually he becomes more interested in what his son's getting up to and what he sees as his son's mistakes. And he starts sending a stream of advice to his son about, well, I think you should do this, and I think you should do that. And his son totally neglects it, pays no attention, and some of the emperor's predictions turn out to be right. But what really turns the emperor back to public affairs is the discovery of heresy, of Lutherans in Spain itself. And that makes him incandescent with rage. And he starts going way beyond uh, uh, what you'd expect from someone who's who's spending his time with monks, he says, you know, these heretics, these heretics, you know, treat them like, like traitors, you know, those who confess their sins, you behead, those who don't confess their sins, you burn to death. Don't show them any mercy, Make, don't even go through the courts, just deal with them, get rid of them. And I can't believe that heresy has come to Spain in mi tiempo, in my time. So he goes out a very grumpy old man. Uh, I, I see three stages in, in Charles's um, uh, 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 time in, in, in Juste. It should be noted that no one pays any attention to him uh, when he, he starts resuming um, his, his activities. Uh, uh, first of all, Philip doesn't listen to him, his son in the Netherlands, but neither does his daughter Joanna, Juana, who is the regent in Castile, and neither does her council. Uh, they are actually when they write to each other, we have some letters written between the councillors saying, oh, there's another letter from Juste. Poor old emperor. You know, he's, he really doesn't know what he's doing. He's probably going off his head. We, we listen. We make the right noises and we do nothing. So he becomes something of a, of a joke, uh, uh, but he dies before he finds that out. And they say, you know, trying to go extrajudicial on this, trying to burn heretics um, without any trial, you know, no one is going to do that. No one may say is going to do that. The emperor might call for it, but it's just not going to happen. So it's it's an interesting uh, phase. Uh, um, uh, there's some very good work by Maria Jose Rodriguez Salgado on Charles at Juste, in which he's analyzed, I think there's something like 500 letters he writes from Juste to the government in Valladolid, which is the regional capital at the time. And she finds, you know, she, she traces them, what does he want? And what actually happens, and in every case she finds, or whatever he suggests, is totally ignored. <laughs> and uh, it must have been somewhat frustrating. But uh, it's it's hard to run an empire when you've said, you know, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going away now, I'm retiring. And then you say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> no, no, just listen. You know. I don't think it would go around too, too well today. It's like ex-presidents trying to say what they should do, should not do. It doesn't go down well. I, I mean... 
I think one of the things that we've uh, that that we've you know seen over the past hour of, of our conversation is is just how you know you know much detail you you have uncovered about Charles's life and how thoroughly you've covered it. But I do have to ask, how close can you really get to someone like Charles who, uh, you know, passed away over four centuries ago? Yes. Um, I've always admired the biographies of, um, Robert Caro of LBJ and, and, and particularly his section on sources at the back of each volume where he comments number one on the enormous quantity of surviving materials in the Johnson library I mean, millions of papers I mean I thought Charles V generated a lot of papers but then um, uh, I, I came across the LBJ archive and thought oh could be so much worse but <laughs> Karen said that he started writing a couple of years after Johnson died when a lot of people who knew him were still alive and he started interviewing and he interviewed a lot of them and he was able to run the interviews against the documents. And he found out that sometimes they just were complete, uh, 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 completely contradicted each other, or they didn't address the crucial issue was just how did Johnson succeed in getting his own way? How was it done? And I don't have that option. If, if the person is, uh, and everyone who knew him, so basically anyone who died before, let's say, 1950, there's not going to be many people around who actually knew them. But there are plenty of people who wrote their memoirs who knew him, who knew Charles V. So you, you, you can hear these voices from the past, and especially if they're writing afterwards. Some of them are just hacks, of course. They're just hagiographers saying what a great man he was and the greatest man that ever lived and so on. But there are other people, especially foreign um, observers, who sometimes have spent three or four years looking at Charles or the monks of the Escorial, uh, who, who sometimes are a little critical of the emperor. Uh, and there you do get these voices, these alternative voices. And the historian has to measure the alternative voices against what you know the man himself said. But it's certainly more difficult. Uh, you could argue that um, fewer sources simplify the historian's task. You know, a couple of archives burned down. Great. You don't have to read them. But it would be nice to have. It would be nice to have. It would be nice to have him back. You know, it would be nice to say, you know, Majesty, Your Majesty. Why did you let Luther go in, in Rome's in 1521? But unfortunately, we can't do that. We, we can't even have visions um, of him, I don't think. I, I never dreamt about Charles. I don't think I'd want to. In some ways, he's a hateful little man. In other ways, you know, he was a remarkable man who achieved remarkable things. Uh, uh, it, is, it is an unprecedented and unparalleled achievement. Hmm. And all through incest. <laughs> Uh, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, uh, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I am um, revising two books. I uh, uh, edited a book called The Cambridge History of Warfare uh, with uh, 10 other authors. And I, uh, the last update, we, we, we first published in 1995, and the story went up to the end of the Gulf, first Gulf War in 1991. The difference between past and present is very, very difficult. Uh, to identify, and we took then the end of the Gulf War as, as marking a chapter in the Western way of war. And uh, we updated it in 2008, and then we took uh, uh, Gulf II, uh, uh, to 2003, 2004, 2005, and the surge as our turning point. And the new one goes up to March 2019, uh, and the defeat of ISIS, or the apparent defeat of ISIS, a temporary, you know, let's see what, uh, whether they come back as they're threatening to do as I speak to you now. Uh, but that is that is one of the things I'm working on, updating a book uh, that I um, edited, uh, uh, first edited 25 years ago. The second thing is a book that I wrote with uh, someone who was then an advice, doctoral advisee of mine, Colin Martin, uh, a distinguished underwater archaeologist on the Spanish Armada and why it failed in its objectives. And Colin had excavated four Armada wrecks. And so he goes on board the ships and can see what there is and, and what they had and what they lacked. And I can go to the archives and we can put together our findings. And we came up with some different theories about why the Armada failed. Uh, in short, it's all about balls. Uh, the Armada had a lot of artillery and a lot of shot, but it hadn't devised a way of repeated fire. So when the English fleet, which has got a system of reloading at sea very quickly. When the English ships come up close and start you know, firing uh, around every five minutes, 
the Spaniards are fine, f- f- firing one round a day. And we know that not only because the contemporary written sources say so, but because Colin found on all of the wrecks and, and some of the others that have been excavated by other underwater archaeologists, very large number of cannonballs, which had clearly never been fired. Hmm. And they all sink after the big battles. And we thought that was an interesting thing. 1988, the book comes out. It does very well. Uh, we do another edition in 1999. And there's just a lot more material that's come out over the past 20 years. More excavations, more documents have been found, more first-person narratives of the Armada campaign, especially on the Spanish side. So we're doing a new edition of that. And um, I hope both of them will come out in 2020. That should keep me busy. <laughs> Certainly sounds like it. Uh, well, uh, Jeffrey Parker, thank you uh, very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>